win that one. And then the L.A. Chargers against the Baltimore Ravens. The Ravens hosting by virtue of winning their uh, division. But this should not be a game where the Chargers are on the road. The Chargers played such a great season. They should be hosting. And I've got the Chargers easily beating the Ravens. So the road teams win in the AFC. And in the NFC, I've got the Cowboys over the Seahawks. And then what could be the best game of the four the defending Super Bowl champion Philadelphia Eagles, who needed all the drama of uh, the final week of the regular season to win, plus they needed a Bears win over the Vikings to get into the playoffs. So the Bears effectively could have chosen to play the Vikings instead of the Eagles, but the Vikings uh, lost. The Bears easily beat them. They host the Eagles. That should be a great game late Sunday night, we'll be reporting. To this edition of Weekend AM, our top stories, President Trump holds out for a border wall with Mexico and threatens to maintain the government shut down for months or even years. A woman dies after being thrown out of a go-go van in Wang Taixin and telecom firm Huawei punishes staff for using iPhones to tweet New Year greetings. The news from RTHK. Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage Morris Abraham Cohen would become better known as Two-Gun Cohen and had such an extraordinary life that it's hard to imagine that it isn't fiction. He wrote his autobiography in the 1950s with help from another writer and about 20 years ago, another biography was written. There have been documentaries, interviews and there's possibly a Hollywood film in the works. Two-Gun Cohen, so named because he could shoot one barrel with two guns, was a pickpocket who was sent to reform school in the UK to try to improve his thieving and gambling ways. He'd later be sent to Canada, and then later become the bodyguard of the founder of modern China, Dr Sun Yat-sen. Morris Cohen was a Jewish general in Kuomintang, China. This week, I'm joined by China analyst and author Mark O'Neill, who tells me about the life of Morris Cohen, who would also spend time in Stanley internment camp, during the Japanese military occupation. He was born in a Polish shtetl in an Orthodox Jewish family with eight children. But his life then goes on to the UK, Canada, China, Hong Kong, Japanese prison camp, back to China, United States, Canada, and finally in, in the UK. So it's a life which no Hollywood scriptwriter could possibly imagine. So, as I say, he was born into this Orthodox Jewish family in Poland, and Poland then was part of Tsarist Russia, and two million Polish people left Russia at the end of the 19th century because of persecution and pogroms. And his father planned to go to America, but only got as far as London. And then he joined the very large Jewish community in East London, and he worked in the garment business like thousands of them. So when Morris was three years old, that's 1890, he leaves his shuttle in Poland, and he joins his father in London. But the living conditions there are very poor. As you know, the family had many children to feed. And the young Morris is not at all a good student. He's very rowdy, ill-disciplined. He doesn't want to study. He likes boxing. He likes picking the pockets of people. He likes gambling. (laughs) He likes going to the fairground. So when he's 10, he's arrested by the police for pickpocketing. But he's too young to go to prison. So they send him to a reform school, which you know is is like a detention place for young people. And then he's sent to a place called the Hayes Industrial School. So this is similar to a reform school. So it's, it's you're confined in there. 
but he's lucky because he has a very enlightened Jewish principal at this school, and it's a site of 12 acres. So actually his living conditions, his working conditions there are much better than they are at home, where he's living in, in a very small house, very crowded house, bunk beds with all the rest of the family. So after he completes his five years at this industrial school, he goes back to his family, but they have too many people, too many mouths to feed, so they want to move him somewhere else. And one of the functions of the British colonies was as a place to send the people unwanted in the UK. So that would include Irish farmers or unemployed British people, especially workers, orphans, people that the, the rulers of Britain didn't want. So his family sends him off to Saskatchewan in 1905. And Saskatchewan at that time was really a frontier place, very underpopulated, rural, extremely hard life, very tough climate in the winter. And the family knew a Jewish friend who lived there. So the Jewish friend receives him and he becomes a farmhand. So he works on the farm, and one of his fellow workers teaches him how to shoot a beer barrel with two guns, which is where he gets the nickname. But his character hasn't really changed. You know, he's not a person who wants to sort of study or <laughs> become an accountant. So he continues to do crimes, and uh, he learns how to play cards and how to cheat at cards. And he ends up in a, a city called Saskatoon, which is in Saskatchewan. And as I say, it's a frontier town. So the population is mostly men, very few women. And there's a small Chinese population there. So what do they do? They have laundrettes, they have restaurants, they have gambling dens, and they have brothels, all the things that are needed for this large male population. So Morris becomes friendly with a restaurant owner called Ma San and starts gambling for him because Mr. Ma has a lot of clients who come and gamble. And so Cohen is like a sort of croupier. He works for Mr. Ma, he gambles, he wins, and he shares his winnings with, with Mr. Ma. So one Saturday evening, Cohen arrives at the restaurant late in the evening and he finds a man with a gun holding the gun to the head of Mr. Ma. Mr. Ma has a diamond ring on his finger, and the man wants the ring. So Cohen doesn't think for one second. He hits the man over the head, knocks him out, removes the gun, and throws the man out of the restaurant. And the Chinese staff, especially Mr. Ma, are absolutely astonished because such a thing has never happened to them. Because, as you know, the Chinese in Canada and the United States at that time are absolutely the underclass. They are greatly disliked, especially by the white workers who see them as undercutting their wages. And, of course, they're also extremely prejudiced against Chinese. So the fact that a foreigner would take the risk of confronting a man with a gun to help a Chinese it just blows them over. So he becomes very friendly with Mr. Ma, and the friendship is deepened because Morris Cohen is arrested again for <laughs> pickpocketing. <laughs> and Ma is also sent to the same prison because of uh, gambling in the restaurant. So the two become close friends <laughs> in the prison. I'm talking with author and China analyst Mark O'Neill about the life of Two-Gun Cohen, or Morris Cohen, who starts off as one of many children in a Jewish family in East London. And uh, we've now caught up with him in his young life 
in Canada. So he's now in his early 20s? Yes, so he's in his mid-20s. And now, as you know, Dr. Sun Yat-sen travelled a lot abroad and he went to the overseas Chinese communities in different countries to get support for his revolution. So Dr. Sun Yat-sen is the leader of the rebellion against the Qing dynasty. So to get support for this rebellion, he goes abroad, including to North America, to speak to overseas Chinese communities there and get their physical support, raise money, but also people. So Dr. Sun Yat-sen, you actually studied medicine in Hong Kong and would actually plan some revolutionary activities out of Hong Kong. He was constantly needing funds. He was constantly needing arms. In fact, his brother in Hawaii was a great help with that. So does it happen then that in Canada, uh, basically Morris Cohen, (laughs) this young con man really, is about to cross paths with Dr. Sun Yat-sen? Well, yes, exactly, because what happens is that... uh, Mr. Ma, the restaurant owner, and the other people in the restaurant are strong supporters of uh, Dr. Sun Yat-sen and have joined his Tongmenghui, which is this uh, revolutionary party. So uh, he invites Morris Cohen to join, and Morris agrees. And 200 Chinese plus him, they pledged to devote their life to the service of Dr. Sun Yat-sen and the liberation of the Chinese people. Now, why would Morris Cohen, who's, as you say, starts off in Poland, goes to England, ends up in Canada, why is he going to pledge lifelong allegiance to Dr. Sun Yat-sen? He's never even been to China. And he's never met him at that point. Well, because Cohen was, uh, as you say, a drifter, a gambler. I think the fact he's a Jewish person living in the Western society meant he felt he was an outsider on the edge of society. And I think he identified very much with the Chinese in Canada because they were the same. And he felt a strong bond with the Chinese. So I don't think when he gives this pledge to devote his life, he, he actually meant it. But actually, that's what happened. Then World War I breaks out. The economy of Canada is not doing well. So Cohen then joins the British Army, and it's sent to Belgium, to Ypres, and his unit is doing railway transport in Ypres. In World War I, there were nearly 100,000 Chinese workers working with the British Army. So Cohen meets them, and because he has had some dealing with them, and the British Army is very short of people who have this experience, he has a lot of dealings with the Chinese Labour Corps in France and Belgium. So this gives him another link to to the Chinese people. So after the war ends, he's kind of looking for a role and how to make himself useful. And in 1922, Dr. Sun Yat-sen invites him to come to Shanghai to talk about building a railway between Guangzhou and Wuhan because Cohen is a man with many connections and he knows people in the railway business, he knows people in Europe. So he's sitting with Dr. Sun in his room discussing this project and then Sun's wife enters. This is Sun Qingling and she's much younger than Dr. Sun. She's in her 20s. She's an extremely attractive woman. So when Cohen sees Mrs. Sun enter the room, he's completely smitten. So... Actually, his devotion to the service of Sun Yat-sen, we should say devotion to the service of Sun Yat-sen and his family. So uh, he decides he wants to stay there. So he says to Dr. Sun, I will become your personal bodyguard. 
And how do we know this? I mean, I think there's a mix, isn't there? I mean, Morris Cohen actually wrote, I don't know whether that was with assistance or, but he actually wrote his own story. And I know subsequently, about 20 years ago, actually there was a biography of, of I mean, he's such a wonderful subject. When he's documented, is that from him or is yes. other people? Yes, yes. Later he wrote uh, autobiography with together with another person. But because, you know, Dr. Sonjason is such a public figure, there were many witnesses to all these events that I'm describing. And how did people feel? I mean, obviously, over in uh, Canada, he'd shown his allegiance to the Chinese community in a very strong way and by saving, you know, in essence, perhaps saving the life of Mr. Ma. But within China itself, I mean, Sun Yat-sen would have had many other people who could act as his bodyguard or be an ally. Was there any uh, opposition to Morris Cohen's position? I don't think so. I, I think Cohen arrives in China with, as you say, already a reputation as someone who's had a lot of dealings with the Chinese people. And he himself is a very forceful character, very persuasive character. And I think most foreigners in China at that time, they were willing to interact with the Chinese, but only for their own benefit, you know, to make a lot of money for themselves, make money for their governments, make money for their companies. Being a bodyguard means you are available 24 hours a day, you go where the person is going. You know, you're not the boss anymore. You are putting yourself at the service of this individual. Now, I would say such foreigners would be few. So uh, he impressed Dr. Sun. He then did many things for Dr. Sun and for his government. So he trained other bodyguards. He became the head of the bodyguard unit. He then became like a negotiator for the for government. So he would be the intermediary with foreign companies, for example, to buy arms for the Chinese government. He, he had people who could help this come about. And Cohen was also an ardent Zionist. Now, we know from Dr. Sun's writings that he was also in favor of a Jewish homeland in Palestine. So I think Dr. Sun had this idea already, but I think the dealings with Cohen would have reinforced this. So 1925, Sun Yat-sen dies, but Cohen continues to work with the Chinese government in different capacities. He is in charge of the foreign exchange reserves at the central bank in Nanjing. And when the government moves to Chongqing in 1937, he moves with them. And where's that? So when the Japanese captured Shanghai and then Nanjing the government had to move. So they decided Chongqing, which is in Sichuan, is interior of China, is outside the range of the Japanese military. It's not outside the range of the Air Force, but of the land forces it is. So that was the temporary capital during the war. So Cohen moves with the government there. But Sung Qingling, that's the widow of Sun Yat-sen, she has a lot of disagreements with the other leaders of the Kuomintang. So she moves to Hong Kong in 1941, and she is campaigning on behalf of the Chinese war effort. So he decides to come to Hong Kong and be her bodyguard. She had complete trust in him. I mean, a bodyguard knows everything, who's coming, who's going, who she meets, what the hours are, what she drinks, what she eats, he knows. And she's quite happy that he knows this. So, of course, the Kuomintang, with Sun Yat-sen having passed away, I mean, who is the Kuomintang now under? Well, the president then is Chiang Kai-shek. But within the Kuomintang, there are all kinds of different factions fighting each other. And Chiang Kai-shek's wife is Sun Mei-ling, who is the sister of Sun Qingling. 
And then another sister is the wife of the finance minister. And what they say in China is the three sisters, one loved power, that's Song Mei Ling, one loved money, that's the one married to the finance minister, and one loved China, which is Song Qing Ling, because she, in the end, joined the communists and stayed in the mainland, whereas her two sisters left and went to Taiwan and went to the United States. So she's staying in Hong Kong, summer, autumn of 1941, and it's getting very dangerous. So it's decided she's at risk of being captured by the Japanese. So Yes, of course, the Japanese are moving south through China at that point and, in fact, would enter Hong Kong on December the 8th, 1941. So she is airlifted to Chongqing for her own safety, but Cohen decides to stay here. So he's here when the Japanese invade and he is um, captured and he's taken to a POW camp. And because of his great knowledge of the Kuomintang, his links to the Sun family, of course, he's a matter of great interest to the Japanese interrogators. So he's extremely badly treated. He was before a rather fat person, but after a few months in the camp, he becomes extremely thin because the rations are so few. And there's one day when he is summoned for an interrogation the Japanese officer is there with a samurai sword. So Cohen believes that his end has come. So he kneels down, he recites the prayers that a Jew must pronounce before he leaves this earth. But the officer does not behead him as he expected. He's just beaten up. So he's carrying the sword as a kind of way to intimidate and frighten him. So in fact, no, he's not executed. Do we know why he decided to stay? I mean, when Sun Yat-sen's widow is airlifted out, why doesn't he go with her? Yeah, I find this difficult to understand. I think if I had been Cohen, I would have joined her on the plane, and he would have been able to get on the plane too. But he is a Canadian citizen, so this works in his favour. So in August 1943, there's a prisoner exchange, and he's able to leave the POW camp, and he's taken to Goa, and he's handed over in exchange for Japanese prisoners. So Goa in India? Yes, that's right. I mean, my grandfather, who was also imprisoned by the Japanese, he went to Mozambique, which is another Portuguese colony, and there he was exchanged for Japanese prisoners. So he spends the rest of the war in Canada, and then in April 1945, we have the first meeting of the United Nations in San Francisco. One of the items on the agenda is what to do with Palestine. Should it be partitioned? Should the Jews have a homeland there? Should they not have a homeland there? So the Jewish community sends a big delegation there and they invite Cohen to come along and he's very keen to come along. He's very, as I say, very pro-Zionist. And the, the Chinese delegation is very ambiguous as to what to do. But when they see Cohen there, all the delegation know him, and they're very excited to see him, and they they very much pay attention to what he says. And he brings some letters of Dr. Sun related to the foundation of Israel for them to see, to remind them that Dr. Sun was in favor of a Jewish homeland in Palestine. So at the key vote, the Chinese delegation does not vote against establishment of a Jewish homeland which was their original intention. So this was a big service Cohen did for his other homeland, the Jewish homeland. In January of 1946, he returns to China. 
and he wants to have some role. But remember now, he's nearly 60. Many of the people that he knew have passed away or left China, and he can't find a good role. But he does leave us this quote, which is, communism is an aberration in the Chinese character. That's what he believed. He believed strongly in the ROC, Republic of China. He believed they represented the future of China. After... Sun Yat-sen's widow, Sung Qingling, is airlifted out of Hong Kong. Is there any connection between her and Morris Cohen anymore? I would imagine when he comes back in '46, there would be some connection. But remember, her position is now becoming ambiguous because she is moving from Kuomintang's side to the communist side. So, therefore, it becomes problematic for him or for her to contact the other because they're on the, on the, on the wrong side. He can't find a role for himself and then we have the Chinese Civil War, the Communists take power in 1949. So he goes back to Canada and the UK. So he spends his next years between Canada and the UK. And he returns to China in November 1966 because this is the 100th anniversary of Dr. Sun's birth. And Chairman Mao invites him to come. And there's a photo of him you know, at this anniversary celebration. And he's the only foreigner present because the Cultural Revolution has broken out. Isn't that extraordinary? I mean, how many other, you know, when you think about Maurice Cohen, he's there with Sun Yat-sen, <laughs> and there he is with Chairman Mao. Well, I, I mean, as I say, foreigners wouldn't go to China at that time. I mean, first, they wouldn't dare to go, and secondly, they wouldn't wish to go, because most of them considered the Cultural Revolution to be a very abhorrent thing. But Cohen decides to go, so there he is for this 100th anniversary, and he dies in 1970, he's aged 83, and he's buried in the Jewish cemetery in Salford, next to Manchester. And uh, as we've seen from the gravestone, there's a Hebrew inscription, there's an English inscription, and then at the bottom is inscription by Sung Qingling in English and in Chinese. And I think that is completely appropriate to tell us that this is a very extraordinary individual who devoted a lot of his life to serving China as he saw it and even though Madame Song is now representative of the PRC I mean she's the, he was the vice president of the PRC she is acknowledging in this inscription his contribution to China so that's uh, I think a very fitting tribute to him. Did he live back up in Salford later on I mean why why is he in northern England why well, is he interned there rather? Well I think during his life, Cohen had money at various times. For example, after making a lot of money in Canada, he went back to London, he bought a new house for his parents, he gave a lot of money to his siblings. I, I think <laughs> that's how he dealt with money. He was very generous. He gave it to people, he threw big parties, he did big spending, he loved eating and drinking, he smoked cigars. So I think at the end of his life, no, he didn't have much money. So he had some relatives in Manchester. I mean, there's a Jewish community there. So I think in the last years of his life, yeah, he was living in the UK with, with family members. But he certainly didn't have a big country estate with servants. No, he certainly didn't. Do we know anything about his private life? Well, he had many girlfriends. That was part of his character. He married at least once. This was a lady in Montreal. But I think you probably tell from his life he wasn't the ideal husband. 
And after meeting, marrying this lady in Montreal, I think he soon found life there too dull and <laughs> went back to China. So she, she got fed up with waiting for him, so she divorced him. So no, as far as I know, he didn't have a, a other wives or a sort of an ordinary family life, but maybe he didn't need one. But as you say, an extraordinary individual. Yeah, and, and he couldn't have had a worse beginning. I mean, he grew into this large family which had no money, and then he became a refugee, went to the UK, and didn't have a formal education. He had no money, he had no connections. He had none of the things that most people need to make a success in life. And so he did everything by himself, by the force of his will, the force of his personality. And what I find most remarkable, as you mentioned, is this empathy with Chinese, because... We're speaking about 1910s, 1920s. And most Western people, I'm sad to say, would look down on Chinese as being backward and alien and not people with whom you want to, to throw your lot in. Mm. As I say, you could do business with them, you could make money out of them, you could employ them as servants, you could employ them to make clothes for you, to make goods for you, that's fine. But not someone that you would give up your own allegiance for. But that's what he did. He threw in his lot with the Chinese Revolution and the new Chinese state. And I find this the most remarkable thing about him. Morris Cohen also was known as Two-Gun Cohen, and this was based on him being able to shoot a can with two guns. Well, he learned many things when he was on this farm in Saskatchewan. <laughs> One was how to play cards and cheat at cards and win, and the other was, yes, how you shoot at a beer barrel but not, oh, just, beer barrel. Right. not just shoot at a beer barrel with one hand, because lots of people can do that. His fellow farm workers taught him how to do it with two guns, which is harder, you know, to hit both, shoot at the, at the same time and hit the beer barrel. So because he learned how to do that, so he became known as two-gun Cohen. And as Sun Yat-sen's bodyguard, do we know that whether those skills were ever called upon? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Uh, I mean, this is more anecdotal than historical. But yes, uh, Dr. Sun was certainly the object of assassination attempts. This was not an easy job that uh, Cohen had because Sun was a very active president. He was always going out to meet people, attend meetings, give speeches. And uh, his control of China was very patchy. I mean, the, the Republic of China only controlled only parts of China. There were warlords, there were bandits, groups everywhere. And many people wanted to kill him. So Cohen was a very busy bodyguard. And there were accounts where uh, he was not injured seriously, but uh, injured slightly. You know, bullets passed, grazed his skin. There are the anecdotes of that kind. My thanks to China analyst and author Mark O'Neill, outlining there the colourful life of Morris Two-Gun Cohen. Mark is the author of Israel and China, From the Tang Dynasty to Silicon Wadi. I look forward to returning to Morris Cohen in future. Next week, I look back at some of the Hong Kong Heritage interviews from 2018. They'll include the late Michael Wright, who died last year at the age of 105, but had been born on the peak in 1912.
And I remember my uncle, who's in one of these photographs, going off to war. It must have been about 1916, 1917. I remember seeing him off on a ship. He was in Hong Kong, Singapore, Royal Artillery, and he was going off to the Middle East. I remember waving to him on the ship as he was going out of the harbour, and so he didn't survive the war. He was killed soon after he got to the Middle East. And this is my main memory of the war, and I was hearing about his death. Under the silvery moon Meet me tonight in dreamland Where love's sweet roses I had a very, very happy childhood in Hong Kong. We had a nice house, quite a big house in Coombe Road, which runs down from Magazine Gap. Well, naturally, I used to go to the peak school, and my brother and I, we would, I had an older brother, we would have a chair to take us to the school. A sedan chair? Sedan chair. We'd share a sedan chair to go to school. Everybody loves a baby, that's why I'm in love with you. Pretty baby, pretty baby. And I'd like to be your sister, brother, dad, and mother too. Pretty baby, pretty baby. Won't you come and let And then the market coolie would come to the school with a couple of scooters and my brother and I would always free, free wheel from the school back home. It's all downhill from, from the peak school to where we lived. It was a good school. I've still got one of the reports. There were only four in the class. Take me out to the ball game. Take me out with the crowd. Buy me some peanuts and cracker jacks. I don't care if I never get back. Let me root, root, root for the home team. The late Michael Wright. We'll be hearing a little more from him next week as I highlight some of the Hong Kong Heritage interviews from 2018. Thanks for listening and join me next week.